This week on Innovation Hub, we're getting into a nostalgic time of year, and that's not a bad thing. What we're longing for is a time when we wouldn't have all these conflicts and worries, when we could actually believe someone and believe that they truly love us just because we are who we are. Then, even if you've never stepped foot in a factory, they've completely changed your life. I take a life-saving drug that's made in the factory. If that factory did not produce that drug, I would literally not be here. Plus... So we were left with no newspaper in Livingston Manor that we could call our own. There was definitely a void in our community. How libraries are filling that void. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In general, do you think America's best days are ahead of us or behind us? That was a question asked in 2015 for something called the American Values Survey. And answers vary by political party, but a lot of Americans were worried that the best was not yet to come. Nearly 60% of Republicans thought our best days were behind us, and nearly 40% of Democrats agreed which might help explain the appeal of a slogan like Make America Great Again, whose champion had only become a presidential contender a few months before that survey question was asked. But the notion of how great things once were, that's not unique to now. It's a notion that entranced Don Draper from the show Mad Men as he talked about nostalgia while showing off a carousel of slides containing precious moments in his life. Let's just travel the way a child travels. Around and around, and back home again. To a place where we know we are loved. And nostalgia is a notion that singer Phil Oak celebrated in the 1962 song, Time Was. Time was when a man could live alone. A man could build a home, have a family of his own. The peaceful years would flow, he could watch his children grow. But it was a long time ago. But why does nostalgia exist? Why did so many people in both 2015 and 1962 and, I suspect, 1815 and 1762, why did they have the nagging sense that things used to be better in a time that they had hazy memories of. Christine Bacho researches nostalgia, and she says, we happen to be living in a time when it's particularly high. She's a psychology professor at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. Christine, welcome. Thank you. So let's first off start with kind of um, a definition here. What does nostalgia mean to you? What does it mean to be nostalgic? That is an excellent question because the meaning of the word changed over time. It was coined in 1688 by a medical physician. And in Huffer, that was his name, in his definition, it's really homesickness, a severe state of homesickness that actually could be fatal in its most horrible level or degree. To me, I have chosen to research personal nostalgia 
And personal nostalgia is that bittersweet feeling that you have when you're yearning for, missing, or longing for something from your past. Mm -hmm. There are other kinds of nostalgia as well. And so it's an important question to get down to the definitions. So as you kind of allude to there, um, do you want to Talk about the difference between like personal nostalgia and historical nostalgia, though I assume there's kind of a lot of bleed between the two in some ways. That is a most important question. Uh, Traditionally, most theorists look at historical nostalgia as longing for a time, a period in history. And usually that period in history can even predate your own birth. Okay. So if someone were to say, oh, I'm nostalgic for the Victorian era and what does that really mean to be nostalgic for something that you never lived through? That is a separate kind of emotional experience. I collected data on both historical and personal. Hmm. The difference, though, is not as simple as how many years ago or even whether it was before your own birth or after your birth. It can come down in my most recent uh, studies. It appears that the distinction comes down to a psychological feeling of connectedness. So if you're missing something that you feel somehow personally relevant or meaningful to you, then that would come under the umbrella of personal nostalgia. I'll give you a simple example. If you were being told stories by your grandparents and you started to become nostalgic for the childhood they described to you, mm-hmm. well, clearly you weren't alive then. Right. So that would be technically historical nostalgia. But because it's in a personal relationship with your own grandparents, I might consider that to be an example of personal. Hmm. You've probably asked yourself this many times, but I wonder why nostalgia exists. Because I could see an argument that nostalgia you know, has you always looking in the rearview mirror and not looking at what's ahead in some ways. Maybe you're not thinking about progress or pushing your own life forward because you're thinking about what's already happened. Why do we get nostalgic? Nostalgia does date back thousands of years. So presumably, it's a part of the universal human experience that probably always existed and therefore probably always will. If it always existed, then it must serve certain needs that humans have. And some of the needs that it appears to serve uh, in terms of my research and the research of others who've uh, also jumped into this uh, theoretical arena have to do with two really important aspects of being a healthy person. One is to be connected, surprisingly, to yourself meaning we change so much over one lifespan. So if you look back at photos in the family uh, album of yourself as a baby or a toddler, it's almost impossible to relate to that. And so one of the most important philosophical questions is, how do we even know that we are the same person we were 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever? And keeping track of what we call identity a sense of who you are, a self, that is very critical to psychological well-being. Nostalgia motivates reverie or reminiscence. And when you reminisce, what you're doing is you're bringing the past forward. It's not that you're returning to the past. A lot Mm -hmm. of times people misunderstand it and they think you want to regress, you want to go back. 
Uh, quite the contrary. You want to bring the past forward so you mm. can contemplate it within today's context. And that way you keep the unity of yourself together. Mm. The other really important uh, function is to connect us to other people. Mm -hmm. So you are, for example, your mother's daughter or your brother's sister, that kind of thing. And so in a way, keeping connected to other people is also important to our sense of psychological integrity and authenticity. And uh, nostalgia plays a very important role in keeping people connected to other people. If you look at the general population, um, and, and maybe focusing on, let's say, older adults, when people look back and they're nostalgic for a time in their lives, does that time tend to be a similar time, like people are nostalgic for their 20s, people are nostalgic for their teens, people are nostalgic for when they were little kids. Is there any kind of like broad conclusions you can draw about the time that most sort of made an impression on people? It is true that nostalgia peaks during two different time periods in our lifetime. One of them is late adolescence into early adulthood. When I first uncovered that, it was surprising, not just to me, but to other theorists, because most people associate nostalgia with uh, old age. That is the other peak, but actually of the two, most researchers have found that late adolescence, early adulthood is a higher level than even aging. So well, let me the, just make sure. It's, so it's not like when you're old, you think about being in late adolescence. It's when you're in late adolescence, at that moment, you are nostalgic for an earlier time. That's right. So okay. it's a little bit of a sliding scale because okay. if you're 20, you're probably feeling nostalgic for middle school or toddlerhood or something like that. But if you're 80, you're probably nostalgic for, and now to address your question directly, it's true that it depends upon what you're nostalgic for. The number one area that people tend to be most nostalgic for are their relationships because nostalgia is fundamentally a social emotion. So if you're 80 or if you're 50, you're going to be nostalgic for romantic relationships that you had, family relationships, maybe relationships with people who were very meaningful in your life, a coach, a trainer, mm -hmm. a favorite teacher. And so if you, it, it's not the number of years. It's the content. It's what you're nostalgic for. Music, for example, is something that people, when they're in their senior years, are likely to be somewhat nostalgic for, and the music they're nostalgic for is of the time period when they became adults. Hmm. I wonder if today's technology at all like amplifies nostalgia. Because when I think about Facebook, it's very good at reminding you of times in your past. So high school photos and grade school photos, they, they all pop up. Um, it used to be, of course, that if you wanted to look at the past, you had to lug out the carousel photos like Don Draper did, or you had to go to your photo album. But I just wonder how being exposed to the past all the time uh, affects nostalgia. I think it does have an impact, and I think most of the impact is a beneficial one. Okay. With one uh, caveat, the warning I have for it is this. Very often when someone is nostalgic, he or she is 
seeking out the triggers. For example, if you went into your digital photos and you started looking for, gee, I want to find a photo of Mm -hmm. so-and-so or my trip to, you're in charge, you're in control. Having someone else choose the triggers and feed them to you can be a mixed bag because if they choose well, it'll be just a nice little nostalgic experience. But if they choose badly, for instance, uh, since I teach college students, I have spontaneously (laughs) been given uh, many, 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 many examples for my students of when things went wrong. Mm. And, for example, if a relationship ended very badly and someone in social media doesn't know that, and then they send reminders and photos from an old trip, not realizing that that's actually going to trigger a painful emotional reaction rather than a bittersweet kind of pleasant nostalgic one. Uh, Some people uh, in college told me that they actually uh, considered giving up Facebook for that reason. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Christine Bacho, a psychology professor at Lemoyne College who has researched the causes and the effects of nostalgia. Um, I talked earlier about the slogan, Make America Great Again, which has this big component of nostalgia in it. When that slogan was first unveiled, when, when President Trump first started running just for the Republican nomination, Did you immediately notice that as like, wait, that's what I study. This is nostalgia. I definitely noticed that. And what I thought was really fascinating to me as a psychologist is uh, during that campaign, Bernie Sanders, who couldn't be further away politically from Donald Trump, right, uh, right, ran an ad that was one of the most popular video ads ever in which the background music was one of the oldies, okay, from a long time ago. It was Simon and Garfunkel, right? It was. And so we have two candidates, both mm, not very young people, right. and uh, followers, people who uh, followed their political ideologies, etc., or liked right. the candidate, who were very, very different politically, and yet you saw nostalgia forming an important component in both. So now mm. the question becomes... What are we really talking about? Are we talking about historical or personal? Well, you would have to do almost uh, a literary analysis of the rhetoric involved. But when you listen or go and reread speeches uh, given on the campaign trail, many of the things that Trump used as examples were things that probably came from his growing up time. So in a way, you could argue that he was experiencing or being personally nostalgic, whereas his audience, uh, let's say if you're a a 35-year-old guy who likes Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. you didn't live during those times. So for that person, it might be historical nostalgia. Isn't that interesting? So there could be two different kinds of nostalgia that kind of come together and blend in a funny kind of way. And it doesn't mean just because you're 35 that you don't long for it, even if you didn't experience it firsthand. Like the the descriptions sound good enough. Yes. And here's the interesting part about nostalgia. There are levels. And so on one level, people can be nostalgic for specific 
objects, in fact, very specific. For example, someone who is very nostalgic for a particular item of clothing, a dress that they wore, Mm -hmm. or an older person who remembers the gown they wore to their uh, senior prom. But those things tend to not be the most important parts of nostalgia. The more important parts are what I call the more conceptual. So things like longing for a time when you could really depend on someone 100%, that you wouldn't have to question that they're going to betray you, abandon you, reject you, someone who would love you just for who you are. Mm-hmm. So in a way, what we're longing for is a, a time when we wouldn't have all these conflicts and worries and fears, when we could actually believe someone and believe that they truly love us, not because of how much we earn or how many academic titles we have, but just because we are who we are. And you never really have that feeling again the rest of your life. So in a way, saying make America great again uh, could be interpreted on one very specific level as the economy and those sorts of things. But actually, when you get down to the nostalgia, emotional part of it, it's more about, gee, I, wouldn't it be nice if we could live the way Phil Oakes sang about? Right. Uh, by the way, have there been in politics, um, do you feel like this is a, a, a common thing, not just in the most recent 2016 campaign, but um, going back, do you see it as a commonplace thing that politicians play on our sense of yesteryear was better than now? I think it depends upon the historical uh, setting or context. I'll give you a simple example of uh, John F. Kennedy, who, because of the time period, the past would have included all those John Wayne movies about World War II and a lot of the horrors of war. So mm-hmm. when President Kennedy, was, who was one of the most popular candidates and presidents of all time, Uh, His rhetoric was just colored with optimism and future-oriented, you know, we're going to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely again, giving people goals to look forward to rather than the past. And in a way, you could argue that uh, nostalgia is a two-edged sword. I see it as I wish we knew how to harness its healing and wonderful powers and not allow it to become the trap that can trap us in the maladaptive or the unhealthy. Because at its best, nostalgia is future-oriented, which surprises everyone. But all the correlational data I've collected and others have collected show that nostalgia correlates with optimism, not pessimism and not reactionary ideology. It's always about going forward. And that surprises people because you would say, well, why would that be? And I think the answer to that comes down to this. Once you really understand what nostalgia is doing, it's fortifying you. You're trying to hold on to your integrity, your authenticity, your connections to the things that are going to be the groundwork, the foundation, and that gives you the strength and courage and sometimes even the methodologies for moving forward. You, you can take with you all that you've learned in your whole life and move forward with it. Christine Bacho is a psychology professor at Lemoyne College in New York. She researches nostalgia. Christine, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. I've come to look for America.
Bacho has actually created a test called the Nostalgia Inventory to measure how nostalgic you are. She says your score often depends on where you're at in life. Imagine a college student who graduates and their first job is 3,000 miles away from home. At that time, they might score very high because they're missing their family and their home and everything. You can measure your own nostalgia by heading to our website, innovationhub.org. And you can listen to this segment again or catch our show every week, no matter where you might be traveling this holiday season, by searching for Innovation Hub on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If a visitor from 1600, let's say Shakespeare, were to travel to your house, there'd be a lot of things that might surprise him. TV, the internet, the dishwasher. But what might be most surprising and most magical is that even if you're not the richest person in your area, you've probably got a lot of stuff. And that stuff seems so perfectly formed and mostly it works quite well. The reason that you've got all that stuff can basically be summed up in one word, factories. In the course of human history, factories are pretty new, but they've changed our lives in ways we tend to forget about. One thing they've done is allowed regular people to afford all sorts of fancy stuff, like microwaves and cars. They've also reshaped America, and increasingly, our politics, and our sense of who we are. Now, a world without them seems almost unimaginable. I take a life-saving drug that's made in the factory. If that factory did not produce that drug, I would literally not be here. Joshua Freeman is the author of Behemoth, a history of the factory and the making of the modern world. And, you know, I have to say it made me very alert to the dangers of chaos, you know, because from, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people, it's that immediate a connection. Freeman is a distinguished professor of history at Queens College in New York, and he says factories revolutionized America. And then fairly quickly, many of them left us. Now political candidates promise to bring them back, though it's not clear whether that promise can be kept. In 1960, 24% of all workers worked in manufacturing. Today, 8%. And I think people would be shocked to think that that change would happen. If the average person on the street in 1960 could not have foreseen the decline of the American factory, lots of average people on the street in 2018 remember, or at least imagine, the America of 1960. You know, I think you could argue that this kind of golden age of America that people are often very nostalgic for, you know, from the, let's say, the end of World War II up through the late 1970s, you know, in part rested on the combination of the large factory and unionization. And I think, you know, a lot of the rhetoric, particularly coming from uh, President Trump, harks back to that. You know, when he says, make America great again, that's part of the image in people's minds. Increasing tariffs on foreign goods, which President Trump has actually advocated for decades, is part of an effort to deliver on a promise, a promise to reopen some of those closed plants that dot our country. In the past, I've heard technology pioneers say that we're glamorizing factory jobs now that they're gone. They were too hard on people's bodies. They were repetitive. Many factory workers dreamed that their kids would get better jobs, which is all to say 
that factories are a lightning rod. And Joshua Freeman acknowledges it's been like that for 300 years. The system emerges, and emerges quite quickly, around 300 years ago. It sort of pops into existence. And there are just enormous efficiencies associated with the factory, with the coordination of production, the scale of production, and the application of external, non-human power to production. And you put those things together, and very rapidly you have this new model of how to make stuff. The first real factory, he says, was a silk factory started in 1721 in England. And as factories spread, tourists started showing up, like Robinson Crusoe author Daniel Defoe and Charles Dickens and the great romantic poet William Blake. But Blake was not super impressed. He called factories dark satanic mills, partially because they polluted the environment. But there were other problems, too. Who were the workers in these early factories? The silk mills, the textile mills, many of them were children. And, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, 17-year-olds. I'm talking about 5-year-olds and 8-year-olds. And their parents thought it was okay to send 5-year-olds to go work in factories? Well, sometimes it didn't have anything to do with their parents. They, they were, came from workhouses. They were abandoned kids. They were orphans. And the local governments that ran these workhouses contracted with these factories for these children to be, they were called apprentices, but they weren't being taught anything. They were just cheap labor. Um, in other cases, parents were desperate. And, and a lot of defenders of the factory said, yeah, child labor is really bad, mm -hmm. but child starvation is even worse. When factories made the leap to America, there were improvements in standardization and in scale. Factories changed the young country. Lots of teenage and 20-something women streamed out of farm country and went into cities for what they thought was an amazing new opportunity. And sometimes factory owners were really committed to the education and enrichment of their workers. Other times, though, as the author Herman Melville discovered, factories were dystopian places for these women. He goes visits this papermaking plant, which, by the way, is still there. I've been there. It's in Dalton, Massachusetts. Really? It's still, it's still oh, there? Yeah, it's still, okay. Still okay. producing That's paper, amazingly enough. And he sees them as, you know, kind of ghostly, you know, wane figures. And, right. you know, he talks about how they're the extension of the machine. The machine right. controls them, right. not they controlling the machine. And he sees it, again, similar to Blake, as, as, as almost devilish, satanic, you know, a kind of underworld. Pretty soon, factories were not the destination of choice for young American women. And by the mid-1800s, the massive buildings that powered America's economy turned to another source of cheap labor, immigrants, particularly Irish immigrants. Joshua Freeman says the country built by our founding fathers, this rural, agrarian place, it had been supplanted by a new vision. You know, the great example I use in the book is the 1876 Centennial Exhibition. This was like a kind of huge World's Fair right, type right. deal in Philadelphia mm -hmm. to celebrate 100 years in the United States. You know, and what's the centerpiece of it? A giant steam engine. You know, it's huh. not the yeah. documents or it's not, you know, George Washington's, you know, wooden teeth. It's, it's a steam <laughs> engine, right? It's a redefinition. And, you know, President Grant comes and he flips the switch and the steam engine starts and powers all this, you know, factory equipment that's there. So the country comes to embrace this as the basis of its national greatness. But mm -hmm. that's not right away. That's a debate. How quickly 
did cities like Pittsburgh or uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, or later on Detroit, how quickly did they start to think about their environment and the things, like in order to make things in factories, very often you have byproducts, waste products, things you then need to get rid of. How quickly did they realize like, "Mm, maybe our water supply isn't as great as it used to be, or maybe our air quality isn't so great? How quickly did that happen? Uh, usually not quickly at all. Okay. And in fact, okay. smoke was often seen as a sign of prosperity. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. if there's smoke coming out, we're doing well. You right, know, in the case right. of Pittsburgh, it's not till the 1940s. You know, it's century later that you begin to deal with that issue. I mean, there were the rare voices. Ralph Waldo Emerson was critical of Lowell, Massachusetts, because they actually bought up land to get more water into the river that powered those mills. And, you know, he thought this was kind of this arrogant imposition on on nature. But he was a rare voice. Mm -hmm. There was a kind of sense that there was infinite resources and, you know, uh, and there's a kind of Promethean impulse behind this. You know, we are the masters of all of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of, like, messing up the environment was really not – uh, something that people pay attention to in, mm-hmm. until extremely recently. And, uh, of course, we're living with the consequences. Mm-hmm. Another environmental question, but but a very different kind. The 1800s, we know we're talking about late 1700s, 1800s is this mm. time of huge factories, huge proliferation of factories. They're changing the world. It was also a time of major colonial powers. And I wonder... How much, you know, on the way into factories, right, you need raw ingredients. And I wonder how much factories drove, let's say, foreign policy because, like, there's a need to get the raw ingredients. Absolutely. Uh, I think you're on to something extraordinarily important, particularly in the case of England and Europe more than the case of the U.S. Hmm. You know, you can't grow cotton in Europe. It's just not suited, the temperature and the environment. So, to create a textile industry, you had to create sources of, of raw materials. And that often required using diplomatic, economic, and even military force hmm. to impose plantation regimes to grow this cotton. Look, this was one of the great reasons for the spread of American slavery, mm-hmm. which was to grow more cotton for primarily English textile mills, you know, which 90% of their cotton was coming from the Americas by, you know, the 1820s, 1830s. So there's a huge amount of global transformation and, frankly, global misery that's created in the process of supplying these factories with raw materials. Even today, you think of China, you know, which is going all over the world looking for rare earth uh, metals. Right, right. Which are so important for, you know, the creation of electronic components. You know, uh, they're investing in mining in Africa all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not traditional colonialism, but it has a lot of echoes of that system. Right, right, right. But why are they doing that raw ingredients? Like if you need to make cell phones, you're going to need different metals to do that. That's right. Right. You talk about a major figure of uh, the 20th century, probably the major figure that if anybody had to think about the factory in America, this is the guy they'd think of, Henry Ford. Obviously, he didn't invent factories. They'd been going strong for quite a while before he came on the scene. How did Henry Ford and how he kind of, in some sense, remade the Midwest, how did that change America? How did that change the factory? What did he do differently? Well, Ford's great innovation, you know, we describe in shorthand as the assembly line. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea here is that 
instead of having workers working individually and then sort of moving products from one workstation to another, you know, the workers stand still and the materials go past the workers who do very limited operations on it as it's in front of them and it goes on to the next person and you build a product that way. And this required extreme standardization of parts so that, you know, a crankshaft would fit into any engine block. And, and we take this for granted, but this was an extraordinarily difficult challenge. So this is a highly concentrated, highly integrated, enormously efficient system. And he's a, a proselytizer of it. You know, mm -hmm. today you can't get into most factories. You know, people don't want you. Ford welcomed journalists. He welcomed his rivals. He welcomed, you know, yeah, really? he was very proud of it. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, the system spread to other automakers and then to other lines of industry and, and overseas. So Ford became a kind of worldwide hero for this extreme efficiency that he introduced with the Model T. It's interesting, too, that you talk about this kind of new level of standardization because one of the things Ford also wanted was a kind of standardization of the workforce, too, to make sure, like, these people were truly American. Um, in some way, he had, he tried to assess that about his workers. What, what did he do and what did American mean to him? Well, this grew out of a practical problem. You know, they introduced the assembly line and workers hate it. Hmm. You know, you're standing all day twisting a few nuts or putting a tire onto right, a hub right. and they just start quitting in huge numbers. Huh. So they have to hire four times the number of workers they need in the factory in the first year of the assembly line. In other words, wow. they have 400%. Yeah. So, you know, what do you do? So Ford comes up with, uh, not just Ford, but Ford and, and the group around him, uh, with the idea of both greatly increasing wages, but also making the increase in wages dependent upon workers adopting what Ford thought of as the habits of life necessary to be a good factory worker. You know, you couldn't drink. You had to be thrifty. You couldn't live <laughs> in sin. You know, if you were Russian, you couldn't take the Orthodox Christmas off because the factory was working, you know. And, and he actually created what he called a sociological department who went into people's homes to investigate if they met the criteria. So, uh, the pay system was you got a basic uh, salary. That was kind of standard wages for Detroit. And then basically a, a double that only if you met these criteria. So Ford was a, a believer that there was the need for a new man for this new factory system. So it's not just the assembly line, but this notion of a new social system to accompany it uh -huh. that, that Ford introduced and was highly influential and picked up by a lot of people who in many other ways were very different than Ford, you know, including later on the Soviet Union. Hmm. Um, so I've got to ask you about uh, the rise of unions and like the role that they played in changing these factories and in changing workers' lives. First of all, I wonder how unions got a foothold and, and how tricky it was to take on, like, big factory bosses. And then I know there have been uh, famous media images of uh, workers just stopping their machines to show that they have solidarity with unions. And there's a famous image in the movie Norma Ray, which is about uh, the unionization of a textile mill. And people just stop their machines in the middle of the workday. Did people actually do that kind of dramatic stuff um, right in front of management? 
Right. Well, when factories started, there were lots of efforts. Unions already existed for other kinds of workers to, to unionize them. But when you begin to get these Ford-type factories, these really giant factories, they are very successful in defeating unionizing efforts okay. until the 1930s. And then with the New Deal and the Depression, uh, you get a wave of successful organizing efforts. And this really takes this system, which had been very oppressive to workers, and once they begin to share the fruits of its productivity, you know, it kind of lays the basis for the great post-World War II prosperity. And the, the key breakthrough happened at General Motors when workers not only stopped the machinery but refused to leave the factory. They had what was called a sit-down strike. They stayed and occupied the factories for almost a month, which gave them enormous bargaining power. So, you know, the ability to pull a switch and shut down a whole factory you know, gave enormous power to workers. When I think about factories now, when a lot of people think about factories now, they think about companies like Foxconn mm -hmm. that produce things like iPhones in China, these huge, huge factories. I remember uh, Foxconn putting in nets uh, in their dormitories so people would not commit suicide. They would not jump out the window. They would be caught by a net. Um, I remember a few years ago, one of the leaders of Foxconn said, we're going to try to bring in as many robots as we possibly can so we can take out as many people as we possibly can. What is the state of the factory now? And like, where does it go from here? Well, the largest factories in human history exist right now. And okay. in fact, they're making things like your sneakers and your cell phone. Okay. And some of these factories have, you know, 200 300,000 workers in a single factory complex. They're absolutely mind-boggling. Is this like in a single building or it's a compound of buildings or what? It's a compound. Okay, so, for example, okay. the place I think you were referring to, which was called Foxconn City, yeah. uh, which was in Shenzhen, China, it was, you know, it took about an hour to walk across you know, the, the, the wow, property. It had many different gosh. buildings in it. But it was one factory complex. It had okay. dormitories. It had recreation facilities as well as production facilities. Mm -hmm. And there are factories that large which continue to be built. Uh, wow. Foxconn did introduce some robots, you know, in some factories. But it built factories that were even larger than that Foxconn city in the intervening years. So, you know, we globally are still at an all-time height of manufacturing. You know, globally, close to 30% of all workers work in manufacturing, and that's mostly factory wow. work. Now, is that a peak, and are we going to start turning down? Possibly. A lot of people think that, and they think automation will lead to that. But we are not in a post-industrial world. Hmm. You know, we may be in a post-factory America, but we are not in a post-factory world. Joshua Freeman is the author of Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World. He's also a distinguished professor of history at Queens College. Joshua, thank you so much. This is great. My pleasure. If you're wondering what Henry Ford's factory actually looked like, we've got a link to a photo essay that'll take you inside the first Ford factory. That is at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. When I was a kid, my hometown paper had a name that I didn't really realize was odd. At least not until I got older and it came up in conversation and people started to laugh. It was called the Mosquito because 
we were a town plagued by mosquitoes. And when I was growing up, that made total sense to me. I never once thought it was funny. Today, the mosquito is still kicking. The newspaper, that is, though I'm sure the actual mosquitoes are doing nicely, too. But just in the last 15 years or so, close to 2,000 newspapers across the country have either merged or they've just entirely disappeared, which for a community can mean no more wedding announcements, no more junior high honor roll lists, no more passionate op-eds about whether to build houses on a new tract of land. And there's another downside, too. No more journalists, except for folks that you've never met in places like D.C. and New York. But change and inventive thinking is on the way from the most unlikely of places. Innovation Hub's Mark Filipino has the story. Last year, Dictionary.com announced that it would be adding an interesting word to its collection. Actually, it was two words, which had worked their way into everyday conversation. Fake news. A huge part of the country doesn't trust the media the way it used to. And we're a country where local news sources are constantly closing up shop. So who steps in to fill the void and help us trust the media again? Well, there's one institution, one that doesn't always get the most attention, that's gearing up for the challenge. I'm going to put this gold star next to three programs that I think would be the best initiatives to foster media literacy. That's Simone Grona Nieto, who traveled all the way from a library in Colorado to be at a symposium of 80 librarians and journalists at Simmons College in Boston. They've gathered to answer the question, how can libraries help the public as the news industry changes? And they might be the best ones to take on this task of restoring our historically low faith in the media. Libraries have high public trust. That's Laura Saunders. She's an associate professor of library and information science at Simmons College. But one issue that we've been discussing is what is that trust really in? In other words, do people really understand what their library does? Or are they thinking just around the I can go there and get a book and, you know, the people there are pretty nice? Saunders points out that libraries have spent decades helping people find trustworthy sources. But navigating the news in the age of the Internet is difficult. So increasingly, libraries are collaborating with journalists to help people figure out what's real and what isn't. One of these libraries is Skokie Public Library, just north of Chicago. Every time I turn on the news, I hear the words Trump. And I can't think that everything our president says is always newsworthy. Jim Barnard sits in a meeting room with about 20 other people. They're gathered for a news literacy workshop. I feel at times overwhelmed by the volume and of news and the pace of news. Most people are either airing their grievances with the Trump administration, wondering how they can protect themselves from fake news, or, like Jim, are simply baffled by media outlets that spend every waking moment covering Trump. The workshop is run by Bettina Chang, the editorial director of a civic journalism lab called City Bureau. Skokie is one of five libraries across the country that got grants from the American Library Association and Stony Brook University to put on news literacy programs like this one. Chang explains how reporters choose stories, how the public can engage with local journalists, and how we can stay one step ahead of fake news. The most common hoax is that a celebrity has died. You know, if you hear that like Denzel Washington has died, and there's only one news source reporting it, do you, I mean, it's hard to believe, right, like that a major celebrity would die and that only one news organization is reporting it. 
Chang says news consumers should be cautious of outlets that don't question government sources, too. She singles out the Chicago Police Department, an agency she says has a tendency to stretch the truth. It's at this point that Ron Ziven, one of the workshop attendees, walks out of the room. When the workshop finishes up, he comes back to pick up his wife. But he says he left because, as a Trump supporter himself, he felt pretty outnumbered. I don't love Trump. He's crass. But everything, all his issues are right. But, you know, you got these people who just are totally against anything. And he was pretty uncomfortable with the comments Chang made about the police. Yeah, that's why I left. What am I listening to here? Everything in the police are propaganda. I happen to know somebody who's involved with the police department who does that. And it's all, what she said is not true. That's not true. They don't try to slant it, as far as I know. I mean, maybe she knows more. I, I don't know. Laura Saunders from Simmons College says that it's important that when libraries have these conversations, they bring in a variety of voices so everyone feels comfortable. If we're going to re-envision libraries as community centers, then we're going to have to re-envision the role of the librarian, and we're going to have to think about educating librarians to actually be discourse facilitators. Increasingly, libraries are able to host conversations that can be had few other places in town. And some libraries are doing even more than just talking about the news. They're also reporting it. So this whole article needs to be reworked by somebody. Great. I was so glad to see O.C. got his article in. Yeah, O.C. got his article in. He did the layout. In the town of Livingston Manor in New York's Catskill Mountains, a few students and adult volunteers are crowded around a school art room table laying out an upcoming edition of Manor, Inc., a monthly newspaper that serves the small community. Livingston Manor's main newspaper shut down a few years ago. And Carolyn Bivens, Manor Inc.'s graphics mentor, says some of the other newspapers in their county don't pay much attention to the town. So we were left with no newspaper in Livingston Manor uh, that we could call our own. And um, it was a void. There was definitely a void in our community. So a few parents wondered, what if we got students to do a newspaper? But it couldn't be a school newspaper. The school didn't have the time or the resources to pull that off. That's where the town library comes in. The library, with the help of a nonprofit focused on youth community journalism, built a newspaper in 2012. And Manor Inc. was born. You know, it was really small, probably not as professional when we started, and it's really grown. I mean, our following has grown. You know, we get people who have heard about the paper and they're like, oh yeah, I've seen a copy of that. That's the paper's editor-in-chief, Iris Fenn Gillingham. She started at Manor, Inc. when she was just 13 years old. And she, like the rest of the staff, was trained by local journalists, mentors, and library board members. Now she's got about a dozen student reporters working under her on stories about everything from the town's annual trout parade to a local bear tagging program. But they also cover bigger stories, like community development plans. So even if they're not breaking the next Watergate scandal, they're still providing news in a news-starved community. Manor Inc. produces a thousand paper copies of the 12-page paper every month and gets its funding through a variety of sources, donations, local advertisers, grants. And not only is the paper keeping the community informed, it's teaching students like 8th grader and Manor Inc. reporter O.C. Helper how to be better journalists. I feel like fake news has led me to want to reach out sources more, like original sources or links or anything that can prove that what people are saying is true. And the idea of having a library-run newspaper like Manor, Inc. isn't just happening in small towns. 
it's bubbling up in big city academic symposiums. So many amazing things that Back at Simmons College, the groups are presenting their workshop ideas. One of the more popular ideas belongs to a group that wants libraries across the country to have newsmaker spaces, where librarians can teach patrons how to produce news. Sound familiar? Simmons's Laura Saunders says that the library's adoption of news literacy and news creation programs are trying to shift the image of the library from a place where you absorb information to a place where you also assess that information. The more that we show them the process and help them to understand how we arrived at the answer, I think the more that they are going to be able to feel like they can trust us. It's a new role for an American institution. For Innovation Hub, I'm Mark Filipino. If you want to know more about Livingston Manor's library-run newspaper, fueled by a bunch of scrappy student reporters, we've got a link to it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.